0: You have this large gap between how police should act and what the law requires. And I think that leads to a lot of frustration
1: and deep disappointment. The Ethicist Corner, brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. Welcome, everybody, to The Ethicist Corner. My guest today is Dr. Ben Jones, Assistant Director of the Rock Ethics Institute at Penn State University. Ben is an ethicist and political philosopher who writes on and advocates for police reform and ethics in policing. His research appears in several venues, including Ethical Theory and Moral Practice, the Journal of Applied Philosophy, European Journal of Political Theory, and the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology, amongst other venues. And in addition to his scholarly work, Ben has uh, extensive experience working on criminal justice policy. From 29 to 2012, He served as the executive director of the Connecticut network to abolish the death penalty and directed the statewide organizing, lobbying and media campaign that successfully repealed Connecticut's death penalty. Following this campaign, he worked as a campaign strategist for Equal Justice USA, a national organization that works to transform the justice system at the intersection of criminal justice, public health and racial justice. Ben, uh, welcome to the emphasis corner. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you, Michael. It's terrific to be here.
1: Um, So Ben, just to start uh, with a little bit of background here, how were you initially drawn to working on police reform? It's something you've written about, you've thought about extensively, you're currently working on it. What experiences led you to that area of work? I think I've had a long interest in
0: the power of the state to kill. And you mentioned I did a lot of work on the death penalty. And so That background and seeing policing and seeing all these killings, which, uh, at least from my perspective, could not be morally justified, even if in many cases they were justified under current law, um, really, really motivated me to dig deeper into this issue. And I get, you know, from the start, I'm not a pacifist. I'm not, you know, I think that there are very limited instances when. force, including lethal force, could be justified, Um, you know, cases where that's the only way to prevent uh, someone from being killed when it's absolutely necessary. But what you see, and this was really evident to me from working on the death penalty, is that so often the state really tries to expand those justifications and expand the areas where it makes the case that deadly force is justified, whether it's in capital punishment, it's in policing, it's in drone strikes overseas, that it's always sort of pushing the limits in very troubling ways. And so, you know, why that's interest has interested me for so long, it's hard to say, but, you know, I think just going back and I would see cases with the death penalty where, you know, the state would make a mistake. It would send the wrong person to prison to death row, and then it would fight tooth and nail to still execute that person, just to, just to avoid having to make a mistake. And I see a lot of parallels with policing. When you, many of these killings that we see, these high profile ones that have been captured by cell phone camera or some other means, the reaction by police officials, government officials oftentimes is to justify what happened rather than to prevent it from ever happening again. And that would, that just drives me nuts. And it, it seems like such an abuse of government power. And it's something that we had, you know, there's, there's obviously large efforts to push back against that. And, you know, it takes a lot of work to change the status quo.
1: So, you know, Ben, you mentioned um, in part of your response there kind of this legal versus moral justification so you thought even 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 if the state has a legal right to kill in certain instances, like say through the death penalty or through uh, an officer involved shooting, it's not necessarily morally justified mm-hmm. in all these cases. Can you say a bit more about that distinction and what you mean by it for people maybe who don't understand that difference?
0: Yeah, it's an important difference, and you it it actually came up very recently because what's what's been going on and what's been capturing the national attention is the Trial of Derek Chauvin, uh, who's on trial for murdering George Floyd, last yeah. Memorial Day weekend in, in 2020. And during that trial, the the issue of lawful but awful killings came up by police. And you hear this phrase sometimes that you know a, a killing by police occurs, and it's you know it's sometimes characterized as lawful but awful. Now in the in the Floyd case, even police professionals, I haven't seen any of them characterize that as a lawful but awful shooting, they just characterize it as unlawful period. But there are a number of other cases, shooting of Tamir Rice, killing of Breonna Taylor, a lot of other high profile cases that sometimes get characterized as lawful but awful. And where you look at current law, a lot of times there's very wide permissions that police have to use force, including deadly force. And when you have the law written you know, in such a way where it gives such you know, deference to when the police can use, use force and deadly force, you have these instances that occur where individuals will look at it and be like, that's not right. Like, it's hard to morally justify the use of force in that particular instance. It doesn't seem like it's necessary to protect life. Mm -hmm. Yet, based on how the laws are written, and and frankly, the the failure by democratic institutions to really exercise proper oversight of the police, you have this large gap between how police should act and what the law requires. Mm -hmm. And I think that leads to a lot of frustration and deep disappointment with not only the police but the lack of accountability by democratic institutions when we see these incidents occur.
1: So, you know, when you're talking, Ben, there's, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, this notion of what, say, police officers might legally be allowed to do versus what they ought to be able to do, this Mm -hmm. kind of distinction that you were starting to flesh out. And what comes to mind for me, and I'm thinking about um, Derek Chauvin and and the, the murder of George Floyd, it might be things like the, the the knee placed on George Floyd's neck and also the use of say like chokeholds, um, mm-hmm. which have shown to be very dangerous and life-threatening in many cases. Um, so that's an example of say like a, a policy that comes to mind for me, where I said, well, that might be legally speaking, a police officer might be allowed to do that, but we might say there's moral or broader reasons where we say they ought not to do that. And so we need to change that policy and there's a disconnect between what ought to happen and what's legally allowed. Are there other policies, like? that are other policies that are obvious for you that come to mind where you're like, this is something that I've seen be allowable by law in policing. That just seems obviously morally problematic and things that you've kind of worked on in that regard. Yeah.
0: For me, the, the ethical principle I start with is the prior, prioritizing the protection of life. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think it's a principle that you can find broad agreement on when you ask people, you know, what should be, What should we prioritize when we think about public safety, when we think about policing? Well, their number one job is to protect life. And in fact, when you look at many police use of force policies, they have that principle in them. But as you were getting at, you know, talking about chokeholds, when we look at existing police practice and policy, oftentimes it doesn't live up to that ideal. And so, you know, chokeholds would be, you know, as one example, as you mentioned, I would also put into that category, uh, no-knock warrants and raids. This this is a policy that it really got started in the 1970s with the war on drugs. It's not something that you know police have been doing for you know centuries or anything, but it's it's inherently dangerous, and you know it sort of came into vogue to you know knock down people's doors and arrest them for drugs. But is that really what? should be our priorities or or should it be protecting life Uh, another example is you look at how police handle incidents with suspects who have a weapon less lethal than a firearm so that would be like a knife or a club and the way police in the u.s typically handle those incidents is radically different than what you see in in other countries Mm -hmm. so for instance in, in the uk most officers don't have a gun. So if they come upon someone who has a knife or has a club, you know, and they're not pulling out their gun to shoot that person in, in, in self defense or purported self defense, they don't have a gun to use. So they have developed, you know, more robust de escalation and non lethal methods to be able to disarm that person and resolve the incident without life being taken. Whereas in the US, you see these incidents and you know, one one I I bring up because it's just, it's so just awful what happened. Last summer in Sarasota, there was a, a woman, 63 years old, uh, her name was Adrienne Stevenson, and she had a history of mental illness, was suicidal. Police were called to the scene and she had a fillet knife, which she was holding to her neck. And there were two officers, you know, they had, you know, one on sort of each side of her. And they told her to drop the knife she didn't drop the knife and then they and she she pointed the knife at the officers there was still you know distance between them but pointed the knife when the taser didn't work um they went next step to lethal force shot and killed her and this was 63 year old woman weighed less than a hundred pounds walked with a limp this was not someone who was an imminent threat they could have you know used more de-escalation tactic tactics mm-hmm. and you look at like how that situation was treated versus in the UK where it would be, you know, handled in a much different way. And something I should also emphasize is that, you know, the officers that shot and killed her, they had crisis intervention team training, which is sort of what is given to officers um, to help them, you know, de-escalate situations with individuals with mental illness and, and and the like. But if you give officers that training, but you still have you. Also, you know, teach them other, you know, outdated tactics like the twenty-one foot rule—the idea that you know someone has any sort of weapon and is within twenty-one feet, you shoot and kill them. You know, the these interventions that we currently use in the U.S. Tend, you know, sometimes end up not being terribly helpful.
1: Yeah, and when you think about um, these, you know, potential areas, problematic areas that you're pointing out—I mean, a lot of them are circulating around use of force issues, right? And mm-hmm. obviously, that's that's really important, given the sanctity of human life and kind of the fundamental importance of not wanting to people to be subjected to violence or to die unnecessarily, right? And so we want to address those reforms with a level of urgency. But when you're thinking about police reform more broadly, are are you primarily talking about use of force issues, or do you think are there are there broader issues that you also include under that umbrella that you think need to be need to be addressed?
0: Yeah, there are definitely broader issues. I, just. In terms of what I work on, I tend to focus on use of force issues. But Mm -hmm. in sort of the broader discussion about policing, especially after the protest in 2020, I see there being three primary areas. So, one is just greater democratic oversight of the police, and sort of how do we put in place mechanisms of accountability so that you know democratic bodies have more say in what policing looks like. And I think that's Responsibility that many democratic institutions have largely abdicated. There's just been this, you know, I, I think police should have a seat at the table, but I don't think they should have uh, veto power over everything, which is de facto sort of how how policing has functioned for too long in the United States. And mm-hmm. so you need these democratic institutions playing a more proactive role in understanding and the first step is just understanding policing because. If, if you don't take the time to sort of, you know, figure out these policies, look at the, you know, figure out what the statistics say, um, it can be very hard to sort of push reforms, especially when there's resistance from those in law enforcement. So I think greater democratic oversight is, is sort of one step. Um, the, another important area, which has really gotten a lot of attention recently is thinking, okay, are there certain responsibilities that we give to the police that would actually be better handled by other entities? Right. And, and you see, you know, the language that gets used, sometimes it's defund the police. Sometimes it's reallocating resources at the end of the day, it means the same thing. And what, and I, and I I think there's a lot of value in this one is because if we look at, if we look at police responsibilities today and what police are doing, there's a lot of agreement especially among criminologists and and other social scientists that many of the things that policing police are doing today are actually increasing harm so we think of like the drug war different forms of drug enforcement like there's a growing consensus that this is not working well that this is not the way that we should handle this issue so some of the things that we're giving police resources for that we're empowering them to do like actually we shouldn't be doing that and we should you know take away those resources and put them towards other, you know, other measures that will be better suited to promote public safety, promote the general welfare. Yeah. And there's also, you know, in this area too, you know, a lot of, if you look at who's shot and killed, who's killed by police, Black Americans are disproportionately represented among that group. And so too, are individuals with mental illness. And if you're, if you have a mental illness in the United States, you're much more likely to be killed by police. That's, the data are very clear about that. And right. so are police the best ones to be responding to folks that are experiencing a mental health crisis? Are they always the ones that should be responding to those calls? And I think there's more and more interest in saying, okay, maybe there are other other ways to respond to these, uh, these sorts of crises. Uh, one example is the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, um, which is probably the best example where you actually have civilian response teams that can handle a lot of these calls. Now, if someone has a weapon or is violent, like you'll still need the police in those cases, but in a lot of these cases, you don't need the police. And and, and these these individuals who get different training that have more expertise in mental health issues, and they may be better suited to sort of handle handle these cases, to deescalate a situation, and make sure that you know deadly force is never even considered at all it's not it's not needed yeah and then i guess the last area that in terms of police reform is and this is something we've been talking about is just there's a lot of bad tactics that are currently um, enshrined in law and police policy that we need to sort of do away with and 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 shift towards um, other policies and practices that are more consistent with protecting life
1: right and so that's that's a really helpful overview ben thank you and it, and it brings up kind of two areas of questions for me i mean one is about reallocation of resources in policing uh and also the language of defunding the police right and i'm going to kind of put something out there and see what you think about this because i i i've been actively involved in Bakersfield and co-chairing the Bakersfield police department community collaborative which is a community-sourced police reform initiative, which we've been working with the Bakersfield Police Department to help them think through ways to revise their policy and practices in several key areas, um, to build trust and legitimacy in the community, um, improve use of force policy, improve their communications with the community, and and so on. One of the things that's come up during the course of this work from community activists has been these calls to defund the police. Mm -hmm. And I have mixed feelings about that language, and I'm wondering what you think about that language. Like, on the one hand, it seems to me defund the police is very similar to calls for reallocating resources. Like, at the end of the day, they're asking for very similar things. Like, a call for defunding the police could mean devoting resources to, um, say, job training, community enrichment projects that are likely to reduce crime because people who are better off economically. Have better economic and communal support structures are less likely to be committing crimes that would involve the police. But also, like the mental health examples you're talking about, if we provide uh, more trained experts who can deal with mental health crises, which police are not always well trained to do, then we could prevent lots of tragic incidents that happen about you know people who are being shot because they are in a mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, I think that If you talk about reallocating resources to do those kinds of things that I'm mentioning, right, you know, helping develop, you know, community development projects and helping police officers respond to mental health crises with people who have expertise to do that work. A lot of police officers are going to agree with you and say, Mm -hmm. yeah, that sounds great. But the defunding language is very triggering for many police officers, Mm -hmm. in my experience. And I wonder I mean do you do you think the defund language is useful? Do you think that that is language we should use when we're talking about police reform initiatives? Or do you think talking about reallocating resources is just getting at the same thing but a more effective way of saying it or or do you see a substantive difference there?
0: That's a great question and I imagine we may have better answers on that in 5 to 10 years just to mm-hmm. see how these different efforts play out. But I guess where we stand right now, I don't know if it always has to be an either or. So, you know, I can imagine, I mean, the, the one benefit about the reallocation language is that it communicates information that isn't necessarily obvious in the defund language. Mm-hmm. Because you could defund the police, you could take money away from the police and not put it towards anything else. You know, she, you, know you could lower taxes if you wanted um, but the reallocate it, the language of reallocating resources. What that communicates is that public safety is a really complex issue, and that we have a, a bunch of different tools in our toolbox in terms of how to make the public safer, make the community safer. And you know, you could you know put some of those resources towards the police, but like you know, that may not solve a lot of the, the important core issues for providing public safety. And so what reallocating resources communicates is that, hey, there's a lot of different ways that we can go about trying to create a, a more safe community. And that addressing the social determinants of crime and you know trying to take this preventative approach um, may be more effective in many cases. And so that's what I see as particularly valuable about the reallocate language. Now, on the other hand, the reality is that you know we have what is it, around 18,000 different law enforcement agencies in the US and there's going to be some shared characteristics between them but there's also going to be some you know very distinct differences between them yes and the reality is is that in a not in, in in a number of different communities you find law enforcement agencies in place that have a history of you know, police brutality of very exploitive practices in terms of arrest and fines, you know, the Ferguson report is, is, is a, a, I don't want to use great example, but is really illustrates where the police were almost this predatory agency operating in Ferguson, arresting black and brown people to make money for the city. And when you have institutions like that, I think there's strong reason why people say this needs to be defunded like this isn't this this is seen as sort of a fundamentally unjust institution that is operating in our in our community it's almost like an occupying force right and like the language of defunding and even abolishing i think what that captures and what i think is important to recognize is that when we look at different different institutions of law enforcement there are going to be some institutions that are just fundamentally resistant to change and fundamentally resistant to protecting protecting black lives to putting in place the changes that are necessary to bring their practices more in line with with promoting the protection of life especially of the most vulnerable in our communities mm-hmm. and you know when, when that sort of intransigence manifests itself, you know calls for a radical action may may be necessary.
1: So I sense, you know, in in the work you've done and your and your you know our discussion today that there's at least some level of optimism for you, right? That the police are reformable. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't be doing the work you're doing. And I don't take that to mean you're, you know. Optimistic in a sense, that's like overly idealistic about it. And you're doing the pragmatic work on the ground to make this work happen. But when we think about, you know, actually making substantive reforms in policing in our communities and in our nation, what role do you think? What seat at the table? You mentioned this earlier in our conversation. What seat at the table do you think police officers themselves should have? Because I've noticed in this work, on the one hand, in working with our Bakersfield community, Mm -hmm. you know, we held community forums. Specifically, without police department members present, because Mm -hmm. we felt and feedback we got was if police officers were there, that people would feel censored in what they could say. There might be some level of fear and apprehension. And so it might delegitimize the process. But we also felt at the same time, in the Bakersfield context, Mm -hmm. that if we don't have BPD officers and rank and file on some level on board with the process and what we're doing, then -hmm. it's unlikely any reforms are going to be successful. I mean, if, yeah. if they're not buying into the process, then what's actually going to happen at the end of the day, right? I mean, yeah. you can think about this as, as educators too, right? If if your your educational practice is going to be much more successful if your students are buying into what you're teaching and how you're teaching it, and you're not like forcing it down yeah. their throats, right? Yeah. So, in the work you've done, um, or outside of the work you've done, I mean, what level do you think of involvement police officers should have or leadership should have in reform efforts?
0: That's an excellent question. And, and I, I to just at the start. It's, it's something I continue to wrestle with and and don't, don't feel like I've arrived at sort of firm conclusions. Sure. Because, you know, it's one thing to sort of try to figure out, okay, what, what sort of use of force rules should apply, what, which ones would be optimal to implement, you know, assuming that they're going to be followed. But if you don't have a culture that buys into these changes, then, you know, one of the the sayings is that culture will eat policy for lunch every day. And, you know, how do you bring about the sort of deep cultural changes that are necessary to frankly make the police a more legitimate institution than they currently are today? And I guess in in the short term, like just, you know the sort of non-ideal conditions that we're operating under at present you know I, I think it's important to be open to interacting with the police and that doesn't mean that you're going to buy everything that they say and go along with with their position on every issue yeah but you know it's worth sort of like okay what's your perspective where are you coming coming from on this issue and to learn that now afterwards you still may be just as opposed to, you know, to them on whatever particular policy issue you're debating. But, you know, I'm generally of the view that, you know, the sort of different ideological silos that we all tend to exist in nowadays doesn't be, isn't, isn't great for, you know, bringing about the sort of community changes you need to bring about. And I think, so having those, converse, you know, having those conversations is, is helpful. Um, but I mean, in reality, you know, at the end of the day, you may have these conversations, and there's still like great resistance to taking what seem as pretty obvious steps that would you know be more in line with protecting life, with reducing forms of discrimination in policing or whatever. And like at that point, I think democratic institutions should sort of step in and do what they need to do, but what's really What's really like tough in the in the United States context is that you know you could have a local police agency you know that you know gets its money from the city government whatever, but then it goes off to some state institution where it gets you know its officers go off to some state training and you know the the lines of governance are just sort of everywhere and so yeah. That makes it really difficult to bring about the sort of cultural change that may be necessary in certain cases. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, and this goes back to your early question about sort of defunding and, and maybe abolishing certain institutions of policing. That, you know, I, I, in some cases, I'm very sympathetic to that and think that, you know, some of those radical changes may be necessary when the culture is just so bankrupt at present that you're not going to get anywhere.
1: Are there you know uh, some of these 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 broader cultural issues which I mean I think your answer illustrates well the complexity of changing a culture in a police department and I mean let alone in any organization honestly yeah um, are there changes when you think about kind of the way that police training happens, and you you mentioned earlier kind of one of the the three areas that we could look at in terms of reforms would be kind of police tactics, um, some on the ground techniques. If you were, if you could change things, if you had the power to do that, right, in a kind of a police academy environment, are there there certain kind of tactics or trainings or or types of trainings that you feel like it would be really useful, generally speaking, to implement in these environments that you think would be productive changes for police tactics and the way that they engage with communities in our country?
0: Yeah, I mean the the area where I, I have the most sort of expertise would be on, on use of force training and the like. And so, you know, one group that I think has put together some some good materials is the police executive research forum. Yeah. And I mean what they what they did was they were reacting to all these cases where police were shooting and killing people without guns, you know. Some were, you know, may had a knife, some were unarmed completely and basically they went over to the uk and they're like how do you guys do this like you're able to sort of resolve these incidents without deadly force and you know they you know talked to officers in scotland and elsewhere and they're like oh you know this, these are the sort of tactics that we use and um, strategies that we use to de-escalate these situations and avoid the need for deadly force and you know i think adopting that on a broader scale could um could have some really beneficial it- effects franklin zimmering he's a criminologist at uc berkeley he wrote a book that came out a few years ago called one police kill mm-hmm. and you know one of his findings in that book is though the majority of individuals who are shot and killed by police are have a gun there are still hundreds of people each year who are shot and killed who don't have a gun mm-hmm. and you know based on his research he he thinks there's pretty strong reason to believe that if we if we made some changes to how police are trained to handle these situations, we could reduce, you know, hundreds of killings a year in the United States. Now there's over a thousand killings by police each year in the United States. And Mm -hmm. so there would still be too many, even if we took that step, but it would would be a critically important step in saving hundreds of lives. Mm -hmm. And, And I guess what gives me a little bit of optimism is that, if we look in the history in the United States, we actually have, you know, though the history of policing has has a lot a lot of problems, there there have been cases where we actually have taken positive steps in reducing police violence, and you know one example is the Tennessee v. Gardner decision, which was decided in 1985. And basically leading up to that decision, you had a number of states and local police departments that started to move away from what was called the fleeing felon rule, which basically said, if it's necessary to use deadly force to stop a fleeing felony suspect from escaping, it, police are allowed to use it regardless of if the person's dangerous at all. So mm. if that's the only way to stop them from escaping, even if they pose no danger to anyone else, you can still use deadly force. Mm. and before nineteen eighty five in a lot of places, like that was lawful it was it was lawful but awful, but that mm-hmm. police were allowed to do that and you had both among folks in policing and you had you know researchers and you had lawmakers and you had judges sort of starting to recognize that, hey, maybe this isn't a power we should give the police that this is unnecessarily taking life and you had this consensus emerge, and then finally in 1985, it was uh, declared unconstitutional nationwide, and I think that same sort of strategy of, you know, looking at other sort of tactics and that the police are using that are unnecess- that's that are unnecessarily endangering life, that we can sort of follow that model um, to, make, to make further progress and save lives here in the US
1: yeah thank you for that example it's uh it's very helpful so Ben, uh it's it's been a fascinating conversation uh i really appreciate your your time um and also just really educational on some issues that are pretty complex but also very timely right now for both our community here in bakersfield but also you know just nationally as well i wanted to i wanted to close the pod which is a tradition that we have in the podcast called the lightning rounds and we just kind of have five short answer questions that help our audience uh, get to just know a bit more about you and your interests. So uh, the first question, this is not an easy one, but <laughs> we'll say just for today, today. If you were stranded on an island today and could have one book with you, uh, which would it be?
0: Well, I just started a really big book, uh, <laughs> Eric Foner's Reconstruction. So that would give me uh, a good amount to read for a while. So. <laughs> Since that's what I'm reading now, I'd probably take it with me to the deserted island.
1: Great, great, yeah. Um, if you could have dinner tonight with any two people, past or present, who would they be?
0: Probably my grandma who, who passed a few years ago. I'd like to see her again. Um, and, and it's been a while since I've seen my mom because of the pandemic, so bring and have her there too.
1: Very good, good family meal uh what is one fun fact about you that few people know
0: i failed normative ethics in college
1: (laughs) oh man that's a good one that's a good one and you're an accomplished ethicist so there's some lesson in there
0: um you got too busy working on the death penalty (laughs)
1: yeah okay so for ethical reasons right you actually you were doing the work right okay (laughs) What is the best movie you've watched in quarantine? Ooh,
0: that's a good one. Oh man, I watched the Snowden one. Uh, It's probably not the best one I've seen, but it was good and that's the one I remember. (laughs) All
1: right, and last but not least, uh, what's one of the best pieces of advice you've received in your life?
0: Keep showing up, especially if you're engaged in activist or reform work, you know, it's going to be frustrating and you're not like, you're not going to see the success as quickly as you would like to see it. But if you keep showing up, if you develop expertise in an area, you're going to have an impact. And it's not it's not always going to be on the, in the timetable that you'd like, but if you keep showing up, good things happen.
1: Yeah, well said. I think a good note to end on too. Um, So Ben, thanks again. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. And um, yeah, I just, I I appreciate your time and your insight.
0: Thank you, Michael. And thanks for all the work you're doing out there in Bakersfield. Sure.
1: Take care. Thanks for listening to the Ethicist Corner podcast, a production of the Keckley Institute of Ethics. To hear future episodes, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or iHeartRadio.